Well, good morning, Sabine Creek. If you are a guest with us, uh, my name is Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and again, we are glad that you're here with us. Um, if this is your first week with us, you're in, uh, starting with a, at a good time because we're just on the um, outset of a new series. We opened last weekend as we begin to kind of unfold and unpack the fruit of the Spirit and how God develops those and cultivates those in our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And so if you have a copy of the Scriptures this morning, go ahead and turn to 1 John. 1 John's where we're going to be camping out this morning, 1 John chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 7 down through verse 21 is where we're going to read together, and basically what we're going to be doing over the course of the next several weeks is taking a look at the fruit of the Spirit through lens of passages of Scripture in the Bible that speak about those particular fruit uh, and unfolding those texts and seeing how those things get pressed into our lives and the Spirit cultivates that and produces that and develops that in us. So 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, we'll read down through verse 21 together and come back and unpack it. 1 John uh, verse, chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, uh, the Apostle John writes these words, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, but whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. The basic premise that we're driving at all over the course of this series is this. Is that there is a difference between a morally restrained life and a supernaturally changed life. We said last week, we used the illustration of trying to take a racquetball and squeezing that racquetball as hard as you can. You can squeeze it and compress it, but when you let it go, it pops back into a round spherical shape. Or you can take a, a, a ball or a Play-Doh. We have lots of them at my house. If you don't have any at your home, feel free to come over and borrow some. But you can take a ball of Play-Doh and you can squeeze that ball of Play-Doh and you can mold and shape that ball of Play-Doh into whatever form you would like to mold or shape it into. There's a difference between a morally restrained life that externally is being pushed on to act a certain way or be a certain way versus a supernaturally changed life that's being molded and shaped by God into the image of his son. 
And what we have in the fruit of the Spirit is indeed the character of Jesus that gets pressed into our lives when the person of the Holy Spirit moves in. We said last week he moves in, begins to unpack his bags, and he has a lot of bags to unpack as he settles in and he takes up residence in our hearts. We said it's the difference between being in a car that you drove here this morning that is an internal combustion engine that propels itself forward versus being a train car hooked up to a locomotive or a diesel engine that pulls that train car forward, right? One has the power and capacity in and of itself to try and drive itself forward, and the other can't do anything of its own accord but has to be pulled along by something else. See, there's a difference between being morally restrained and supernaturally changed. And what we want to get out over the next nine weeks together is what does it look like to be supernaturally changed with regards to love and to joy and to peace and to patience and to kindness and to goodness and to gentleness and to faithfulness and to self-control. Against such things there is no law, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. What does it look like to really be changed and molded and shaped into the character of Jesus? That's what we want to get underneath over the course of the next nine weeks together. And we start this morning by turning our attention to what the Bible says over and over and over and over again is one of the most fundamental marks of the life that has been supernaturally changed and it's the mark of love. It's the mark of love. Now, as we dig into 1 John chapter 4, and John, John loves love, okay? Uh, all throughout his gospel and all throughout his epistles, he speaks of love on repeated occasions, the love that God has for us and the love that we are to have for one another. And so as we dig into 1 John chapter 4, we want to ask several questions. First of all, what is love? Because I think many of us probably operate with a very skewed perspective on what love is in our lives, which leads to all kinds of chaos in our lives. So what is love? Second of all, who are we called and commanded to love? Third, what happens if we don't? What happens if we don't? And then finally, how does this love get cultivated in our lives? How do we learn to love like this? So what is it? What is it? Who are we supposed to show it to? What happens if we don't, and how is it cultivated? You with me? First and foremost, what is it? What is it? Now, when you read the Bible, the Bible, when it speaks of love, particularly God's love for us, and then in turn, our love for one another, love is in the, in the Bible isn't an emotion that we feel necessarily, but it's a commitment that we express. So in 1 John chapter 4, here in particular, I would say love is this. Love is an unconditional commitment to the needs of others before or instead of your own. It's an unconditional commitment to meet the needs of others around you before you meet your own or instead of meeting your own. Now you say, where do you get that in the text? I want to show it to you here in the text. I want you to notice right off in 1 John chapter 4 that we just read together. Notice right off that nowhere in that particular text in the Bible does, the, does John write about God's love for us as if God feels a particular way. But in 1 John chapter 4, John's writing about God acting in a particular way, doing certain things, not feeling certain things, but doing certain things. Notice in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 that we just read together, when the apostle John writes about God's love for us, this is what he says. He says, in this the love of God was, and my translation says, made manifest. Your translation might say revealed or demonstrated. In this the love of God is shown 
to you. And how is it shown to you? It doesn't say because God feels a certain way, but because God has acted in a certain way. God has acted in a particular way. And how has he acted? That he sent his son. He sent his son into the world so that we might have life through him. Again, in verse 10, he says very similar things. In this is love. And he doesn't go on to say, in this is love. God feels a particular way. He goes on to say, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he loved us. And how did he love us? He sent his son, he says, to be the propitiation for our sins. It's a big theological term, which basically means this. Is that, all, that God's anger against sin fell upon Jesus and turned it aside from you and I who have placed our faith and trust in him. So God, in in this text, John doesn't speak about God feeling a particular way about us, but acting in a particular way towards us. And when you think about our love for one another, it should follow the, the lead of God's love for us. It's not necessarily, when we talk about love and love for one another, it's not an emotion that we feel, but rather a commitment to the needs of others before or instead of our own. C.S. Lewis is brilliant on this issue. I love his work in mere Christianity. He says this about love. He says, love in the Christian sense does not mean an emotion. It is not a state, is not a state not of the feelings, but of the will. The state of the will which we naturally have about ourselves, we're naturally committed to our own needs. He said, but we must learn to have about other people. He says, you're naturally born in such a way that you're committed to your own needs, but you have to learn to love other people. You have to learn to be committed to the needs of others before instead of your own. Now, love, properly defined, is not an emotion, but it can produce emotion. Okay, It can produce feelings. It's not properly a feeling, but it can produce them. Lewis goes on in Mere Christianity to say this. He says, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. And as soon as you do this, you will find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. In other words, when you behave as if you have feelings for someone, if you act in a way that's going to meet their needs before or instead of your own, then you will presently find that something begins to stir in your heart and you do begin to have an affection and a feeling for them. He says, if you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. You ever found that to be true in your life? Whenever there's someone who has wronged you or someone who has slighted you or someone who has grieved you and you do something to impugn or injure them, you find that it's just that anger and that hatred begins to grow more and more in your heart. He says, however, if you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. You will find yourself disliking him less if you act in a way that's loving towards them. In the same way that God has acted in a way to demonstrate his love towards us. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, when he says, God does what? He demonstrates his love for us in this. And what is the this? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Love, see, it's not an emotion properly understood. It's a commitment to the needs of others before or instead of your own. And as you engage in that commitment and as you act towards others, as Lewis says, don't bother wasting time debating whether or not you feel a certain way about your neighbor, of whether or not you have these emotions towards them, but rather act towards them as if you love them. Might say the same thing would be true about your wife or your husband. 
Those of you who might be in dry seasons in your marriage, you might say, don't bother wasting time debating or arguing with a counselor or with one of our elders or with a pastor about whether or not you have emotions or feelings toward your spouse, but act as if you love them. And Lewis says, if you do, you'll find this great secret to be true is that there'll be these affections that begin to build in you as you act towards them with that commitment for their needs above your own. Let me show you how this is true. Those of you who have children, you know it's true. You've seen this in your own life, haven't you? Right, when you bring that child home from the hospital, and you get it home that first night, I remember bringing our firstborn son home from the hospital. I remember going, I think I'm going to break this thing at some point, okay? I, I'm really unqualified to do this. And I'm, when we're in the hospital, we got people coming, checking on us around the clock, right? You can, you can take it down to the nursery if you wanted to, to get a little bit of rest after the ordeal, particularly the women. I, I can't say that I was very tired, but I know my wife was, and I know many of the ladies were. But you have all these people helping you in the hospital, and you get that child home, and all of a sudden, you are now responsible to take care of its needs. You are responsible to serve it around the clock. And what do you get back from it? Nothing but a deposit of dirty diapers, and tears, and being awoken at 3 a.m., and 5 a.m., and 2 p.m. when you're trying to take a nap in the afternoon. Right? You serve that child's needs, and you serve that child's needs, and you serve that child's needs, and you get nothing but wake, being woken in the middle of the night and, and a diaper genie full of dirty diapers that really don't smell very well. Right? That's what you get back from that child. Maybe a few weeks in, maybe six, seven, eight weeks in, they'll reach up and they'll grab your finger and kind of smile at you. And that's about all you get for a long time with that child. But you're serving it, and you're serving it, and you're serving it, and you're serving it, and you're laying your life down for that child. And you know what happens in you as you do that? There is a love that begins to grow. Even though you're getting nothing back from that child, there's a love that begins to grow in your heart. They're doing nothing to meet your needs. They're doing nothing to take care of you. All you're doing is taking care of it. And as you take care of that, your son, or as you take care of your daughter, there's a love that begins to awaken in your heart for them. And it grows deep, and it grows strong, and it grows resilient. So that even when they're 17, 18, 19 years old, and they're acting like knuckleheads, okay, and they might be rebellious, you still love them. Even though they might be going opposite of what you have raised them and reared them and invested in them to do, you still love them. You still have feelings for them. Why? Because you spent your life serving them. Lewis says that's how it is with love. It's not an emotion. God, the Bible doesn't speak of God feeling a certain way, but acting a certain way. Acting a certain way. And if you and I will get a hold of that in our minds and get a hold of that in our hearts, it will, revolutionize, it will revolutionize our lives. So here's the question. Not do you feel a particular way about the person who lives next door to you. Not do you feel a particular way about the person that you work with in the cubicle just down from you. Not do you feel a particular way about the child who's in your home or the spouse who shares your bed. But are you acting in a particular way to demonstrate love to them in the same way God acted to demonstrate love to us? Love is a commitment to the needs of others before or instead of your own. That's what love is. Now who should we show it to? 
I think the Bible's pretty clear on this as well. Pretty clear on this as well. Two categories of people that I think are going to sum up pretty much everyone that you might ever come into contact with. These two categories are, are, are as follows. First, your brothers, and second, your enemies. Your brothers and your enemies. Those are the ones God calls us to show love to. Look in the text that we just read together in 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John chapter 4, we find this admonition all throughout, this command all throughout this text. And in one in particular place, we find it in verse 11 where the text tells us, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Or down in verse 21, you might read it again. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Right? When the Bible uses that language of one another, it's talking about those within the church, those who are part of the family of faith, those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And the Bible calls us, and Jesus calls us, and the apostles call us to love one another, to love the church, to love our brothers and sisters. But notice who else he calls us to love. If you go into Matthew's Gospel and the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is kind of running down through, you know, you've heard that it was said, this is how you should respond, and this is how you should act. He says, but I'm here to tell you there's a different way to live. A different way to live. And in Matthew chapter 5, you see him say these words, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And our tax collectors in Jesus' day were the most notorious sinners that publicly that you could possibly imagine. And the Gentile, the reference to the Gentiles there, are those who were outside of God's covenant community. Those who had not t- tasted of God's loving kindness. And so Jesus says, listen, if you're acting like tax collectors and like Gentiles, you're acting like people who do not know God. If all you do is love those who love you, that's not Christian love, he says. He says, yes, you should love your brothers, but you also should love your enemies. Those who despise you, those who betray you, those who ridicule you, those who oppose you, those who persecute you, those who make fun of you, those who talk about you behind your back, those who gossip about you, those who slander you, those who curse you to your face. He says you should act in such a way, remember, not, not, you're not feeling a particular way about them in that moment, but you should be committed to their needs above and instead of your own, acting as if you loved both your brother and your enemy. You see, if you were to flip a coin this morning and say, which one do I struggle with most? Okay, my, my hunch is that you struggle most loving your enemy. Maybe that's just me. That could be just me. But I have a hunch that it's probably you as well. And here's why, because naturally we tend to love those who are like us. We tend to love those, be committed to those who are, have the same values as us. We tend to be committed to those who have the same goals in life that we do. 
in particular, we naturally tend to be committed to those and exercise love towards those that we think benefit us somehow. We think that maybe perhaps they can kind of raise our stock a little bit or give us more credibility or help us advance in our career. So yes, I'm going to serve them. Yes, I'm going to love them because maybe one day they will do me a solid, right? They'll do me a favor. They'll return it back. The reality is that Jesus calls us in the supernatural love, the supernaturally changed life. See, a morally restrained life might love someone to get something back from them, but a supernaturally changed life loves some other people purely just to give to them, to help meet their needs. You think about God's love for us. God didn't need anything from us. God was absolutely self-sufficient before he ever formed the first man from the dust of the ground. He was absolutely self-sufficient, didn't need anything from us, but he gave everything to us. You see, if our love is to follow the lead of God's love for us, then it looks like that. It doesn't look like us loving someone to get something in return. It looks like us giving of ourselves and loving others and serving others and acting towards them, meeting their needs, whether or not they can do anything to advance our career, whether or not they can do anything to raise our credibility in our community, whether or not they can do anything to return a favor to us. That's what love is. And loving your enemies, loving your enemies, even when they despise you, even when they curse you, even when they persecute you, it's a sign of a supernaturally changed heart. Because naturally you can't love like that. And I can't love like that. St. Augustine said it this way, he talked about loving our, even our enemies. He said, love all men, even your enemies, not because they are your brothers, but that they may become your brothers. That you may be at all times on fire with brotherly love, whether toward him that has become your brother or toward your enemy, so that by being beloved, he may become your brother. Let me challenge you with something this week. It's a challenge for me as I look in the mirror myself. Would you act as if you loved an enemy this week? Someone has hurt you. Someone who you think has done you wrong. Whether it be in your workplace, whether it be in your family, whether it be in this church. Would you act this week as if you love someone and help meet the need of someone above or instead of your own? And see if what Lewis says isn't true. That you would grow in love for them. In addition, would you love someone this week and act as if you love someone this week who can do nothing to return the favor to you? Who can do nothing to advance you in your career? Who can do nothing to help move you next time you need to move? We all love those people, don't we? <laughs> who can do nothing? Who can do nothing to increase your reputation? Raise your stock. Would you act in a way this week that demonstrates love? 
Not because we're coming from the outside, putting these moral restraints on the life, but because internally the love of God has been planted in our souls. And so we're acting out of now who we are. In the same way that God is love, and so he acts in loving ways that we whose nature is being reshaped into the image of Christ, that we would act out of that new nature and love those who can't do anything for us in return and who may have even been critical of us and wounded us, despised us, opposed us. It's a sign of a supernaturally changed life. This is who we're called to love. What happens if we don't? What happens if we don't? This might be a little bit strong, so forgive me. What happens if we don't? If we don't, if we fail to love others in the way that God has demonstrated love to us, here's what happens. You will make a living hell out of your life. You will make a living hell out of your life. In verse 8, I want you to consider what the Apostle John says. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Listen to what he says. It's a pretty bold declaration. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He says God's nature is that he is love, right? Love is from God, he said in verse 7. Not in the same way that a, a, a letter is from the postman. He just kind of drops it off and there it is. But love is from God in the sense that love is a part of God's nature. It's a part of his personhood. Love is from God in the way that heat is from fire. It's a part of its nature. Or that wetness is from water. It's a part of its nature. And he says, if you know God, and he's not just talking about if you have all these intellectual assertions about who God is, but rather if you have this relational, if you've had a relational encounter with God through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, if you know God, if you have a relationship with God, he says, you cannot say, I love, my, I love God and then hate your brother down in verse 20. He says, you can, it's, it's inconceivable in John's mind for someone to say, I know God, and then not demonstrate the very nature of God. Now, he's not saying, and let me be very clear here this morning, he's not saying that we do this perfectly all the time. If you do it perfectly all the time, I'd love to meet with you this week and discover what secret you have that helps you to do that in every instant, on every occasion, with every person. He's not saying you do it perfectly all the time. He's saying rather that there's progress in this. That there's progress in this. So it's, it's hard to look at your life in any one moment and go, yes, there's love, or yes, there's joy, or yes, there's peace. The question is, am I today more loving than I was a year ago? Right? Just like with anything organic, if you were to go out and plant a tree, you don't go out there tomorrow and go, measure it. And see if it's, it's, it's a centimeter taller Right, you, you can't see that with a naked eye, but you know what? As a year goes by, as three years go by, as five years go by, all of a sudden there's measurable growth that you see in that tree. As it grows taller and its canopy grows more expansive. He's not saying that you do this to perfection. He's saying that you're progressively growing in your love and your demonstration of love the way that God's demonstrated love to you. He says if you know God relationally, and you act in ways that are loving toward his people and even toward those who despise you. 
In the same way that while we were his enemies, he loved us and acted in love towards us. But if you do not know God, he says, if you do not know God, if you don't have that relational, had not have that relational encounter with him, you don't know him relationally, you don't know him personally, you might know things about him. It's never become real for you as we talked about last week. The Spirit's never taken those truths and illumined them for you and they become real for you. That's never taken place. You don't have a personal, haven't had a personal encounter with God, then here's where you are. You are right now in a living hell. Apart from the presence of God in your life. Apart from the power of God in your life to sustain you and to give you joy and to produce love and patience and kindness and goodness. Right now you're in a living hell. Because here's what happens, inevitably, doesn't it? If we're not acting in ways that shows commitment to the needs of others before or instead of our own, here's what happens. Here's what inevitably will happen. You will use people instead of loving them, right? Because you've always got to get something back from them. You will burn bridges rather than building them, right? You'll look in your past and there'll be a wake, a wake of destroyed relationships. You will push people away rather than pulling them in. Your presence will create pain rather than pleasure in the lives of those who are around you. People will see underneath the false pretense and see that you are not loving them for who they are, but for what you can get from them. And it will cause all kinds of havoc, and they will see down to the motives in your life, and you'll burn through relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship, both romantically in the context of marriage, also platonically in the context of friendship. You'll burn through relationships with your children because they'll see that the only reason that you're doing anything for them is so that one day they might do something for you. It'll create a living hell in your life. And those who don't love this way, here's why they don't love this way. Here's why they experience that living hell is because they're operating out of fear. In other words, I can't act to meet the needs of others because I'm afraid if I do, my needs won't be met. If I lay my life down to meet the needs of others, how can I be sure my needs are going to be met? I, nobody's going to be looking out for me. I've got to get mine. Right? That's typically what drives someone into that living hell of using people, of burning bridges, of destroying relationships. They're acting out of fear. But notice what John says in verse 18. He says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out all fear. In other words, you don't have to be afraid that your needs aren't going to be met. But you can love and be vulnerable. You can expose yourself to being injured by giving to others. C.S. Lewis, I think, is brilliant on this point again. Listen to what he says. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal, like your dog, cat, pet. Lock it up, right? Not even to an animal. Wrap it up carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and disturbances of love 
is hell. It's hell. And if we, if we do not act in a way that demonstrates that we are willing to meet the needs of others before us instead of our own, then we create for ourselves our own personal living hell here. Which is merely a foretaste of what we will experience one day if we do not know God. So if that's, the, if, that, if that's the seriousness with which we are talking this morning, then how is it that this love gets cultivated in our lives? How is it that we become the kinds of people who are committed to the needs of others before or instead of our own? Whether they are our best friends or our worst enemies. How is it that that gets cultivated in our lives? I want to I suggest to you one thing this morning as we close. If you want that kind of love to be cultivated in your life, if you want that kind of love to be demonstrated in and through your life, here's what you've got to do. You've got to begin to meditate on the costly love of God. You've got to meditate on the costly love of God. I want you to notice something in the text that we just read together this morning. John says, listen, this is, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but what? He has loved us. God says, John says, we didn't take the initiative in this relationship. God took the initiative. He sought us out. He sent his son to us. We didn't climb up to him through loving deeds and acts, but rather he sent his son through the greatest loving deed and act in human history. In fact, he's gonna say, the reason we love is because he first, what? Loved us. He first loved us. And you and I have to learn to meditate upon that costly love of God. Here's why. Because you and I all can only learn to love other people through our experience of being loved. That's how we learn to love other people is through our experience of being loved. Right? Your kids learn that in your home. They learn what it is to love someone else by the, their experience of being loved by their mother or father, don't they? Those in platonic friendships who maybe didn't grow up in a home that was very loving, they learn what it is to love. They learn what it is to love through the experience of that friend loving them. Or in a romantic relationship in a marriage, you learn what it is to love through your spouse demonstrating love to you. Or you learn what it is to love in the church. So you come into a body of believers who are demonstrating that love to each other and they keep showing love and showing love. So you learn to love by your experience of being loved. And if that's true even at an earthly human level, how much more so is it true in our relationship with God that you and I learn to love through our experience of being loved? It's only as we taste of his love and meditate on how costly it was for him to love us, it begins to change something in us. We begin to love others freely. We begin to love others fully. As the love of God becomes real in our lives, it might be true, but the Spirit makes it real. And we experience it personally. And then because we are being changed into more loving people, as the Spirit pulls us down the track, then we begin to show that kind of love to others. You've got to meditate on the costly love of God. We love because He first loved us. 
And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to turn aside his anger against sin so that it wouldn't fall on us, but it falls on Jesus. So that we might experience his kindness and his gentleness and his faithfulness and his love. That's how you learn to love like this. That's how it gets cultivated in your life. It's not a three-step process. You've got to keep filling your mind with thoughts of the costly love of God to you and chewing on those things and chewing on those things and chewing on those things. You've got to recognize that with regards to love, you are independently wealthy. <laughs> right? You don't need someone else to fill your tank because what God has done for you fills it to the overflowing and as you meditate on that love that God has shown you, and it continues to bubble over in your life, it just naturally flows out downhill to those who are around you in your life. You gotta meditate on that love. You gotta think on that love. You gotta chew on that love. One of the songs, and I'll close with this, that helps me chew on the love of God in my life is an old hymn written by Frederick Lehman. In that hymn, he says, it's called The Love of God. It's re and redone by a modern group. You might know of them, Mercy Me. Uh, they redid this song in a more modern arrangement. But this is what the song, the lyrics of the song, the words of the song, they say this. The love of God is far greater than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill or a pen, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure. The saints and angels song. In other words, all of God's people and all the angels of heaven continue to declare this song throughout all of eternity. The love of God. And I love the second verse when he says, could we with ink the ocean, if all the bodies of water on the earth were filled with ink and every branch and twig were a pen and you dipped it into that ink and every person who's ever lived were a scribe and the skies above us, as expansive as they are, they were paper and you were to take all the ink out of all the bodies of water on all the twigs on earth with all the men and women who have ever lived and they were writing the love of God above it would drain the oceans dry he says nor could that paper that parchment those scrolls contained all the expansive love of God if you stretched it from one end of the horizon to the other and as you meditate on that love of God sending his son it begins to fill you. You become independently wealthy. You don't have a need for anybody to give it to you anymore because you've gotten everything that you need from him. So you begin to give it to others and give it to others and give it to others. Have you experienced the love of God? Have you personally encountered him through his son, Jesus Christ? If you have not, you cannot love this way cannot because you will constantly be chasing your needs being met and never be able to meet the needs of others 
And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you during this next song, even after that next song, at the end of the service, myself and one of our elders, David Bolton, will be in the back next to the prayer room on your way out on the left. We'd love to visit with you about that, about how you can encounter the love of God personally in your own life. Let me pray with you. Father, we come this morning with thankful hearts filled with gratitude for your love for us. Father, we recognize there's nothing that we could ever do to earn it, but rather you give it because you are it. You are love. And Father, as we meditate on that, as we think on that, as we process that, as we chew on that, as we think about your costly love, by which you demonstrated that you were committed to our needs, our great cosmic need of reconciliation with you, and by which you show us every day that you're committed to our needs, to meeting our needs. As we think about that, Father, may indeed your spirit pull us further down the track in our life so that a year from now we might look back and see that we are more committed to the needs of those around us than we were today. May your spirit bear his fruit in our lives as we depend upon him and submit to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.